Welcome to the Dead Lady Show podcast. I'm Susan Stone. The Dead Lady Show celebrates forgotten and also possibly quite famous women who achieved amazing things against all odds while they were alive. The show is recorded in front of a delightful audience at Berlin Sakud, and on the podcast we bring you a special selection of talks from these events. And in Berlin, we've recently celebrated International Women's Day, or Weltfrauentag, as a public holiday for the first time, the very first time, and Berlin is the only German state where that is the case. Here to celebrate dead and live ladies with me is Dead Lady Show co-founder Florian Dowsens. Hello, welcome. Hi, Susan. Great to be here. <laughs> Yay! Did you do anything to celebrate Weltfrauentag, International Women's Day? Um, I did. I made some soup and dinner for a uh, lovely lady that I know who had worked all day, despite the fact that it was a public holiday. Um, and then I screened several episodes of RuPaul's Drag Race. So we, we deconstructed gender. We had some soup. We celebrated women. Very good. See, I went to see Captain Marvel. That's a little bit mainstream. <laughs> <laughs> did they? They must have. They must have known what they were doing when they picked that premiere. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And um, I would say, I mean, the beginning is kind of slow. It's a little over sci-fi overload, but um, it definitely had some of those some of those good 90s girl power moments. And um, and there's no romance in it. There's like friendship is, is more highlighted and she does turn out to be really quite cool in the end. So and there's a cat. There is an awesome cat. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like, are they limiting their demographic with that, or are they just speaking to a particular? Um, it, it has made me, have you, you haven't seen it I have yet. not okay, seen it. So yet. it has made me question orange cats, just in general, like Morris the cat, Garfield. I'm really skeptical and curious and suspicious now of orange cats. So once you've seen the film, you know, come back okay. and talk to me. Okay. But um, yeah, so every day, of course, is International Women's Day here at the Dead Lady Show podcast. At least, Hell yes. <laughs> at least every month is. <laughs> yeah, because it's still Women's History Month, which again, why have one, uh, have 12? Um, and so we are uh, happy to present to you another wonderful dead lady. Uh, her name is Noor Aniette Khan. She is a true hero. And her story is both sad and surprising. Our own Dead Lady Show co-founder, Katie Darbyshire, told her story from the stage in Akud, and here it is. I'm going to be telling you about this woman who you can see in the stamp, which I have placed in the top right corner of this slide. Um, on, she's on a first-class British stamp. Her name is Noor Unnisa Inayat Khan, and uh, let me just turn around and see what it says. It says, SOE agent in occupied France. Imagine for a moment you've led a sheltered life, try, uh, of music, poetry, and spirituality. And then you find yourself captured by the Gestapo and held in the SD headquarters at 84 uh, Avenue Foch in Paris. What would you do? What Noor Inayat Khan did, of course, was to conspire with two fellow prisoners to loosen the bars uh, on the skylight in her attic cell by scratching away at the plaster over several nights with a screwdriver, climb onto the roof, and make an escape attempt. Let's go back to the beginning, though. Uh, Noor Nisa Inayat Khan was the oldest of four siblings. You can see her here with the bow in her hair on the far left uh, with all of her family. She was born in 1914 in Moscow, as it turns out, where her father was working as a musician. 
Here comes her father, very good-looking man. Uh, you'll notice he, ha he's, he has a really good beard in all the photos. <laughs> There's a couple of photos of him coming up. Um, uh, he's always the one with the beard. Uh, here he is playing the vena, which is, is a bit like a sitar, really. He was trained as a classical musician in India and then inspired by his Sufi master to spread the spiritual world, uh, spiritual word, sorry, around the world um, in the West via his music. So to take spiritualism, uh, Sufi spiritualism out of India. There are recordings of his music on 78 records, but this is not about him. He was descended from a man called Tipu Sultan, who was the ruler of the Kingdom of Mysore. Uh, he fought the British Imperial forces of the East Indian Company, but was defeated and killed in 1799. What you can see here is his amazing mechanical tiger mauling a European man uh, who uh, emits musical groans. <clears throat> Uh, uh, this was plundered by the East Indian Company and is still today in the Victoria and Albert Museum. So Hazrat Inayat Khan formed this amazing looking band with his brothers. They were called the Royal Musicians of Hindustan. He's the one with the beard. Um, they went to America, London and Paris where this photo was taken. It's a little guessing game. Does anyone have an idea who this woman at the front might be? because if you do, I'm going to give you a free book. Excellent. She's dead. Oh, well, I have to keep my free books then. Um, this is uh, Matahari with the Band of Brothers. She, if you, if you don't know, she was this Dutch woman who pretended to be from Indonesia. Um, she was a dancer, a courtesan, and later a spy. And we may one day tell you more about her on this stage. We'll see. Anyway, so here she is pretending to be Asian. Uh, <laughs> dancing in front of the band, who she hired to play for her. Noor's mother was uh, this woman here, Aura Ray Baker. She met uh, her father on, on his American tour. She was living at the time with her half-brother who, who ran a kind of a yoga club and he was really into kind of Asian spiritualist things. Um, but he didn't want his sister to marry an Indian. So she ran away and sailed on her own to Europe. She took on the name of Amina Begum, embraced the Sufi order that her husband founded in the West and apparently enjoyed the seclusion of wearing a veil, although while they were living in England, she took it off because everyone was suspicious of rebellious Indians there. So the families eventually settled in the Paris suburbs in this rather fancy house. It was donated by a follower and it was called Fazal Manzil, the house of blessing. Uh, Inayat preached Sufi spiritualism. He, he himself was a Muslim, but he thought that all faiths were equal so that his followers could actually follow any religion as long as they did the spiritualist Sufi part, which is a very Western uh, version of Sufism. He was relatively equality-minded for the time and for a religious teacher, and he, so he did put some women in quite high positions in the order. The family, the children, had an idyllic childhood. Here they are playing in the back garden uh, in Indian robes. 
They would perform plays together. Noor write a lot of poems and songs. They spoke English at home with their mother and they didn't learn French until they went to school, but obviously they did pick it up. Uh, they understood Hindi and a little bit of Urdu from their father and his brothers. It was idyllic at least until their father died on a visit to India in 1927. Noor was aged only 13 and went on her first and I think only trip to India at that point to visit her father's tomb. At which after that her, the, their mother had a breakdown and spent years in mourning, almost 10 years I think, and needed looking after herself while Noor ran the household alongside going to school. Didn't stop her really though, she learned to play and compose for the harp, here she is playing it with her brothers and sister. And she studied music for six years and also child psychology at the Sorbonne. She didn't really expect to ever get a job. Um, she probably thought she would have an arranged marriage. And she was surrounded by kind of wealthy disciples of her father. So although money was tight, they, you know, she didn't have to earn it. Here she is playing her father's vena and looking already rather gorgeous. Yeah, various ideas for arranged marriages fell rather flat. She was quite shy, but once she started studying music, she did uh, get engaged to, to a pianist. Um, the Sufi order was mainly made up of, of kind of wealthy Europeans, a lot of Dutch um, matriarchs, really, uh, disapproved of, of the fiancé because he was a, a penniless Turkish Jew. And eventually, Noor broke it off. But around that time, she began writing children's stories based on Indian epics. She published this book that you can see on the left, uh, 20 Jataka Tales, which was a, an illustrated collection of retellings of, of some of these tales, which are about Buddha's previous incarnations. She wrote children's stories for newspapers, for Figaro, and um, she was going to set up her own children's newspaper. You can, what you see on the right here is, is a play uh, it's a French word. I'm going to try and pronounce it. Aed. Mm. Mm, my French friend is sort of kindly nodding. Hmm. Um, which is based on the Odyssey. It wasn't published in her lifetime. It was never performed, which I think is it partly maybe to do with it's got like a flock of sheep in it and a talking river. Very, very sweet. Um, not very practical. Um, so then, of course, war came. And Noor faced, faced an ethical dilemma. She was a pacifist, but what to do about fascism? And Noor and her brother Viliat decided to, quote, thwart the aggression of the tyrant by leaving for England, where they lived as quite young children, to fight in some way. Noor volunteered for the Women's Auxiliary Air Force. You can see her um, ID card here and became one of the first 40 women to be trained as radio operators. Here she is in, looking gorgeous in her uniform. I think that's the same photo we saw on the stamp, right? While she was in England, she came out of that rarefied um, religious atmosphere and became much more aware of the world and the very active Indian independence movement at that time. She supported um, Nehru's and Gandhi's ideas. She went for an interview for a promotion and was asked about her views on India. She said that Indians should be allowed to form their own armed home guard to defend the country against Japan, something Churchill fiercely opposed. He didn't want Indians having weapons. And she would support Indian leaders. She said she'd be loyal to the British government during the war, 
but once it ended, she might rethink. It was about that time, she did get the promotion, it was about that time that military intelligence spotted her, probably because of her fluent French and her radio skills. Military intelligence, in this case, was a department called SOE, Special Operations Executive. Here are some of the people who worked in, the, in one of the stations they had. It was an unorthodox secret department using sabotage and subversion, which supported resistance in occupied Europe and across the world. Uh, it employed 10,000 men and 3,000 women around the world. You can see some of those women here. They've all got fabulous wartime names, Sicily... Maggie, Molly, Jane, Chaz and Dave. Uh, but yeah, they all have marvellous names. Lovely photo. From, uh, from April 1942, and this is quite significant, the SOE allowed women to work in the field. They also had uh, this special, a couple of special sections making kind of James Bond Q-style devices, like, I kid you not, exploding Buddhas. Um, <laughs> and invisible ink, one of which was in the Natural History Museum. Now, I was, I was putting this talk together, and I'm thinking, wait, that sounds so familiar. And um, I remembered that actually my grandmother, my dad told me that my grandmother had worked as a typist for some kind of military organization in the Natural History Museum. So I'm going to just show you. Here's my grandmother. Oh, let me see if I can work the pointer. Here she is. Uh, on an outing with her communist pals. Uh, <laughs> they're all wearing uh, they're those little ha paper hats they're wearing are for, uh, give, uh, from the Daily Worker newspaper. They're on some kind of boat. We know nothing else about this photo. Anyway, Noor was, uh, my grandmother was a typist. Presumably the reason she didn't tell us uh, what she was doing is she had to sign the Official Secrets Act. Uh, Noor was not a typist. She was asked to become a clandestine radio operator in France. She accepted immediately, despite the danger. Let me just find her and read you her acceptance letter. It tells us a lot about her. Dear Sir, after the interview I had at your office, I have spoken with my mother, and my worries in this connection are more or less wiped out. Firstly, I realize that in time, my mother will get used to the idea of my going overseas. Secondly, I may be able to provide her with more efficient financial help, which would relieve me tremendously, as my wartime writing income is quite inadequate. Besides, I realize how petty our family ties are when something in the way of winning this war is at stake. I shall therefore accept gratefully the privilege of carrying out the work you suggested. I feel I may be of some use as long as the work is purely operational. So she didn't actually... If, when you read that letter, you don't know what she's talking about, but we do. She was very discreet, already worked out the whole espionage thing, I think. She was helped along the way by this woman, Vera Atkins. I love the way she, she looks quite strict, but strangely caring in her uniform there. She was uh, assistant to the head of the F section, which just stood for France, um, and she took each agent to the plane that would fly them over. She kept in touch with their families on their behalf. I think she was a kind of an aunt-like figure who, who reassured Noor, but didn't pressure her into going to France. It really was her own idea, or her own volition, let's say. It wasn't her idea. 
she uh, the night uh, Noor flew out to France, she actually gave her the brooch that she was wearing as a good luck charm. After the war, Vera Atkins is the person we have to thank for knowing what happened to, to many of the agents who were lost in France because she went over to Europe and kind of traced their paths and researched what had happened to them. Obviously, they were killed. So. Noor, here she is looking absolutely gorgeous as a civilian, was fast-tracked through SOE training. They were in a rush. She was taught codes, radio technology, map reading, explosives, weapons handling. She was trained to pass as someone who had been in, Fran in occupied France all along. She was given a mock Gestapo interrogation and set on a mock mission to, to Bristol. Um, her progress reports were good. It was clear that she was nervous, but she was good at her job. Until word got out about her father, who uh, was referred to within SOE as a crackpot. Suddenly we see words creeping in like too beautiful, too exotic, not overburdened with brains. She has an unstable and temperamental personality and it is very doubtful whether she is really suited to work in the field. They called her the potty princess based on her real her heritage. But at the same time, they urgently needed a radio operator in France and nor was the only option immediately available. So her uh, superiors followed their instincts, ignored the reports and sent her out into the field. She was equipped with a radio like this, which um, I think must have been very heavy, uh, hidden in a suitcase, and flown out on the 17th of June, 1943. Her cover story was that she was a children's nurse. She was given a forged ID card and forged ration cards, although not taught how to use them. <laughs> um, she was uh, given clothes that they'd made specially that wouldn't give her away. Her code name was Madeleine. Um, Nor was the very first woman radio operator to be sent into the field. It was a very risky job. Um, at the time, the life expectancy for a radio operator was six weeks because, uh, because the Germans could very easily track the radios. They had um, those vans like they used to track down pirate radio stations. It's the same technology. Um, and so operators had to be constantly on the move between broadcasts. They, could, they shouldn't broadcast for too long at one time. Uh, and they had to keep finding new locations. Within a week of her arrival, though, most of the network she was working with was betrayed and arrested. And Noor was soon the only radio operator working in Paris. She was doing the work of six, um, communicating with Britain, doing the logistics of getting arms and ammunition into the city for the resistance. I'm going to show you... Um, a video of her biographer, Shobani Basu, who has a lot of great anecdotes about that time. Here's one of them. She was completely exposed. There were several times she had a really, really narrow escape. She has to string up this wireless aerial, which is about 20 meters long. She's doing this on this tree outside her apartment, taking huge risks, you can imagine, surrounded by SS officers everywhere. And suddenly she hears this voice saying, excuse me, mademoiselle. She turns around and it's an SS officer. She says, oh, I just, she pretends, turns on her charm and says, I just wanted to listen to the radio. 
Now, listening to the wireless and music was banned, actually. So he thought, oh, this young girl is just bending the rules a bit and just wants to listen to some music. So he said, I'll help you put it up. <laughs> so he actually, this German officer, helps her put up this um, aerial, not knowing for one minute that half an hour later she was transmitting to London. Transmitting to London, yeah. Brave girl. The head of SOE at the time called her job the principal and most dangerous post in France, and I do believe that. She was offered the chance to return to London but turned it down. She realised how important her work was. Um, after about three months, though, so about more than twice the expected time, somebody sold her name to the Gestapo. She was arrested and taken to Avenue Foch, which we saw at the beginning, kept in these, one of these attic rooms on the sixth floor. She didn't reveal anything to her Gestapo interrogator, but unfortunately London failed to notice that she'd been arrested. The Germans had captured her radio and her codes and were, after about a week, they went back to broadcasting, sending fake information. They also unfortunately had the records of what she had broadcast in the past. In November 1943, um, that escape attempt I told you about at the beginning happened. Um, sadly, once they were on the roof, on top of the sixth floor, there was an air raid and the, the staff checked on all the prisoners and found three of them missing, quickly brought them back in. After that, her interrogator lost patience with her, sent her to Germany to Pforzheim Prison, which is now a custody centre for rejected asylum seekers awaiting deportation. She was kept shackled and isolated. Um, she was uh, categorised as a, a Nacht und Nebel prisoner, so she, there were no records. She was not officially in Germany. Finally, we know uh, she was taken to Dachau concentration camp with three other SOE women, where she was beaten, shot, and cremated. Allegedly, her last word was liberty. There's a plaque, you can see here, the, um, one of the cremation ovens at Dachau, with a plaque for those four women next to it. Noor Inayat Khan is remembered, and that's the positive thing about this story. Uh, I'm showing on the left uh, a poster for, for the film Enemy of the Reich, the Noor Inayat Khan story. It focuses, I watched it, you, you, can, uh, you can buy it online for 3 dollars It focuses very much on, her, on the faith side of the story. It's not something I can relate to. Um, it's very moving, but it, it kind of made me think, were there any women involved apart from her? So I'm very pleased to tell you that there's going to be a new film. It doesn't have a title yet, but here on the right, you can see the three stars, Radhika Apta as Noor. I don't know if you recognize this lady at the top, is Stana Katic from Castle, as Vera Atkins, and uh, Sarah Megan Thomas as Virginia Hall. So I hope that they're going to actually focus on the, the women and the work that they did, um, rather than the, the traditional war heroes that we usually hear about. So we saw her a little bit earlier. This is the tireless biographer, Shabani Basu, and I really recommend her biography uh, with the strange title of Spy Princess, The Life of Noor Inayat Khan. Basu is, um, 
really feels her way into the character and I, and I felt like I really understood her motivations. There's a lot of detail about the wartime that I have skipped over. And Bat is also a, an untiring campaigner. Um, in 2012, after you know a lot of campaigning, a statue of Norm was unveiled at Gordon Square in London. And we just heard yesterday, Susan told me yesterday, uh, that there'll be a blue plaque installed at her mother's address for Taverton Street, which is right close to that Gordon Square where Nor used to sit quite often. It'll be the first official uh, historical blue plaque in the UK to honour a woman of Indian origin. Noor was also awarded the George Cross and the Croix de Guerre. Sorry for my French again. Um, I will remember Noor, though, as the woman who stood by her pacifist principles and yet went on fighting to the very end, who fought fascism on the side of the British, but may well have gone on to fight the British for Indian independence had she lived, who gained nothing away under interrogation despite her fear, who scratched away plaster to attempt escape and scratched messages into the bottom of her food bowl at Fortheim Prison to communicate with the women in other cells, to cheer them up, to learn the news. She was in isolation. I think she was a really great inspiration and I hope you go home not forgetting about her. Thank you very much. Another fantastic talk from Katie. I'm so glad to know about Noor. Photos and more information about Noor and her notable life can be found in our show notes at deadladyshow.com. We'll keep you up to date on the progress of Noor's blue plaque in London and related commemorations. In other blue plaque news, the rainbow-edged plaque commemorating Regency-era lesbian landowner Ann Lister at a Yorkshire church has now been updated. If you've heard our episode on Anne, which is number 12, you'll have heard us discussing the debate over language used on the plaque to describe Anne. It's now been resolved, and you can find all the information about that, as well as a transcript of that episode, over at deadladyshow.com. And if you haven't heard it, go listen. Our theme song is Little Lily Swing by Tritachion, which you can find on SoundCloud, along with all episodes of the Dead Lady Show podcast. Find us on social media at Dead Lady Show or drop us a line to info at deadladyshow.com. Please share and review us when you can. We really appreciate it. We do. The Dead Lady Show was founded by Florian Dowsons and Katie Darbyshire. The podcast is created, produced, and edited by me. Thanks to Florian and to Katie and all of you for joining us. I'm Susan Stone. Mm-hmm.